Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. In this episode, Dr. John Randolph joins me on the show. John is a neuropsychologist, a brain health coach and consultant, and the author of The Brain Health Book, Using the Power of Neuroscience to Improve Your Life. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Let's uh, let's talk about brain health. So this is, uh, this is a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart. It uh, also makes up probably one of, if not the core pillar of the idea of brain first. So uh, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Uh, first of all, can't believe it's taken this long to actually get you on the show um, since, since you know, brain first is very much about uh, brain health. Um, interestingly, I was asked the question, uh, I was on an interview a couple of days ago and someone asked me, what is brain health? Which kind of threw me a little because it, it sort of said to me, even though like this is my life and, and you know, it's your life and, and we spend a lot of time talking to people about this sort of stuff, to me it said, man, we've still got a lot of work to do because when someone's asking what is brain health, to me that kind of says, well, clearly the information, maybe it's not out there enough, maybe we're not talking about it enough, maybe we haven't made it important enough. So maybe let's start off with, um, what is brain health? How do you conceptualize it? And and how did you get into this um, whole field as well? Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, it, as far as what is brain health, I mean, it, it's it's funny. It sounds like a very straightforward question, but it's actually uh, has a lot of layers to it. So, you know, when I think about brain health, I think about um, what are the activities that might contribute to helping our brain work better and helping our cognitive skills work more effectively? Um, and I think about brain health as, as kind of the elephant in the room when we consider all aspects of health, that people who are considering, uh, for example, cardiovascular health or mental, emotional, behavioral health, um, we, we always need to be, let's say, making good decisions learning and remembering information effectively, um, processing information efficiently. And in order to, to boost our heart health or our emotional health or any aspect of health, brain really has to be front and center when we try to, you know, kind of get to that better place. Um, and I like to look at, you know, what is the science behind lifestyle decisions that we can make that really help the brain work better? 
um, and that can relate to uh, making certain areas of the brain larger. Um, we know that exercise, for example, hits the hippocampus very, very well, and we actually can grow new brain cells or neurons within the hippocampus when we exercise more. So we know exercise is one of those things that's great for the brain. We know that being socially or mentally engaged also are these you know, free or inexpensive activities that uh, do good things for the brain as well. So, um, you know, there are really so many different ways that we can consider um, boosting the brain. And I guess those would just be a few things that kind of come to mind. So, uh, you know, so, so those would be some, uh, some of the sorts of things. And um, the other, I, I guess, piece when I, when I think about brain health more generally is that we really have a fair amount of control over how our brain works and also how our brain ages. And this is, I think, a, a fairly new idea for many people, including some people in the medical profession, that the things that we do day to day really can impact how well we can stave off dementia or potentially stave off dementia, how well we can um, just sort of help our brains to work at their optimal levels in day to day life at any one point in time. And we know that we can really help the brain work better across the entire lifespan. There's a lot of science that anywhere from younger kids to uh, older adults in their 80s and 90s, there are many things that we can do based on the science that really seem to matter. So I guess that would be kind of a, a you know, a first sort of stab at that, uh, that broad question, but a great question. And um, and how, how did you get into this? Like, have you always been interested in brain health or was there a transition into specializing in this area? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, so also, uh, you know, for me, um, I can go back to my undergraduate years and I got interested in biopsychology and, you know, the sort of brain behavior relationships at that level. Um, into graduate school, I became more interested in neuropsychology and moving in that direction specifically um, and did a couple postdoctoral fellowships to specialize in neuropsychology and neuroimaging as well. So that all led me down the road of becoming a clinical psychologist or neuropsychologist and a clinical psychologist. Um, but about 10 years ago is when I started thinking much more, not just about the problems that can occur in the brain and how to sort of diagnose and characterize those problems, which are kind of the bread and butter skills uh, of a neuropsychologist, but also the, the other side of the equation. How do we really promote brain functioning, uh, you know, in people who are healthy or people who are struggling with some sort of a, a neurological issue? And, you know, surprisingly within neuropsychology, this is actually a, a fairly new idea to look at the other side of things. Uh, as a, a colleague said whimsically, uh, he said, neuropsychologists are deficit hunters. Uh, we're sort of looking for the, the problems that people experience. And, you know, that, that's an important aspect of what we do, but it, it does neglect, um, you know, the other side, which is why many people come to see folks like me is, okay, maybe I've got some challenges. But what can I do about it? And what does the science say? Um, what are the applications of that science that can improve my life? Um, so I, um, I started doing some public speaking in this area. Uh, I had the opportunity to edit and write uh, a book for other neuropsychologists um, called Positive Neuropsychology along these lines. And uh, then more recently, um, my uh, brain health book came out, which is uh, sort of a translation of the science 
for a general audience, um, for people that might not be specialists, but really want to understand a bit more about, you know, where's the evidence uh, as far as what we can do on day-to-day to help the brain Mm-hmm. You said something before um, that uh, very similar to the way I approached the answer um, uh, the, or the question, how I answered it in terms of what is brain health. And you seem to put it in terms of not just the future, not not just about things that we might, might worry about, you know, 30 years down the track, but the now, like how the brain is functioning now, how the brain is functioning today, this afternoon, next week, next month. And I think that's one of the things that um, I've often found when talking to people about brain health is they think that it's um, to do with, you know, building some perhaps level of resilience so that um, maybe I reduce the chance of getting Alzheimer's when I'm 80 or something like that. And because it's so far off into the future, they're like, you know, and, and as human beings, like, we're always thinking, oh, it's not going to happen to me. Oh, it's so far away. You know, that um, I think it's called uh, temporal discounting. The, the We value the now more than we value what's off into the future. So I think it, the bringing the conversation back to the now, what are the things that we can do in the now that are going to uh, help improve health and performance on a day-to-day basis is I think really critical to helping get get this message out there. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently that I've started to put into practice in terms of um, trying to help people in this area adopt these habits, uh, things like exercise, maybe let's start off with that as an example, right? (laughs) We've got so much evidence out there on exercise, the benefits of exercise. We know it. You don't need to be a neuroscientist to know it. Everybody knows it, but most people are still not doing it, right? So in thinking about this, and oftentimes I use the neuroscience to, as a tool for influence, um, and maybe you've got some, um, some comments on that as well, uh, but one of the things I've been starting to, to share recently is um, these experiments that I've been running on myself for the last couple of decades. Um, one that I just started um, recently, so single subject design, uh, the impact of, of exercise on productivity and energy levels. Uh, so, um, it, it's a, it's somewhat controlled, um, uh, like I can't, um, factor in and, and account for the placebo effect, but I'm looking at, you know, how can we take the things that are most important to people and many of the people, many of our listeners, it'll be productivity, performing better at work, and then bring in something that's going to impact their brain health, like exercise that they're not doing and associate it or attach it to the thing that's most important to them. Hey, you want to feel more energetic at work and you want to be more productive? Exercise. Oh, by the way, here's an experiment. And we've got a ton of data on this already. I'm just trying to make it um, a little more sort of entertaining. So it's me on this assault bike, you know, struggling my guts out first thing in the morning when it's cold and pitch black and, oh, my God, this is terrible, this is killing me, like making it a bit of – a bit entertaining, a bit of fun, but trying to show, hey, look, when I do this, this is what's happening to my energy levels and my productivity for the rest of the day in, in a kind of controlled way. Oh, isn't that interesting? Like I'm interested in stuff like that. Maybe I should start exercising in the morning. So I'm, I'm kind of using this as, an, as a, uh, a tool to try and get people into things that are going to impact them in so many different ways. What what are some of the things that you found that that work? What are some of the struggles that that we're up against in trying to get people to adopt these kind of habits? 
what are your thoughts in, in this area? Yeah, no, a uh, lot of great stuff to uh, maybe hit on here. So, um, you know, first, what you were mentioning earlier, the kind of temporal discounting, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be in my 80s for, you know, decades and decades. I'm not going to worry about that until I get closer, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly easy to discount that, that distant fate. Um, we do know, uh, though, that at any one point in life, um, for example, in midlife, what we do with our physical activity, just as one example, um, intellectual activity as well, has significant implications for that period of time. Um, so when you follow people over the years, let's say if you're very physically fit at midlife, there's actually a study that came out uh, recently that looked at a group of women, um, they followed them for 44 years. And the ones who were most physically fit at the beginning of that study, way early on, um, those were the people that had a significantly lower risk of dementia, um, remarkably lower than anybody else. So, so that's one thing that people think about. Um, but sure, in any given moment, um, we look at studies of, let's say, acute exercise, um, just going through one exercise session. Um, after you get past that initial like fatigue, you've kind of taken a shower, you sort of start moving forward, um, your, your memory, it tends to be better. Your executive follicular is stronger. You process information more quickly, um, you know, for a few hours after that exercise session. So we can think about, you know, something, you know, 40 years down the road or literally 10 minutes after we mm -hmm. exercise. And as you were saying, from a productivity standpoint, that's ultimately what, you know, these sort of um, changes in our cognitive skills in the moment sort of feed into, of course. Um, we can also think about, let's say, um, you know, dietary changes. When people eat along the lines of the Mediterranean-style diet, they generally have better brain health at any given point in time and are much less likely to, let's say, need medication um, because they have uh, high blood pressure or diabetes or uh, maybe they struggle with obesity. Uh, you know, by eating a Mediterranean-style diet, it reduces the risk of having any of those sorts of issues in the background. Um, again, kind of in any given moment. Um, so I, uh, I, I think that a lot of the research, really, um, oh, sorry, my screensaver here, hold on a second. Um, research has, yeah, sort of focused at times on, uh, yeah, kind of way down the road, but um, there is so much that we do just, just in day-to-day -day life that um, really does relate to brain health. Um, we can also think about the strategies that we use that are tied into brain health. Um, you know, in my book, I talk about the CAPE model, it's acronym for a few different key factors in, in brain and cognitive functioning. And the C relates to cognitive strategies. So uh, what, what cognitive strategies do we use day to day? Do we write things down frequently? That's great. Do we create time estimates for the things that we write down, the tasks we're trying to complete to build our time management skills, um, give us a better framework for the day ahead based on how we are sort of shifting things around um, in that context? Um, do we use good, let's say, strategies remembering people's names, even at that level, um, attaching personal associations to a new person's name to help us remember it easier? Like if you meet somebody named Frank and maybe you used to go to school with a guy named Frank or work with a guy named Frank, um, are you creating an image of those two people standing next to each other, throwing tomatoes at each other? The goofier, the better. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, those kinds of strategies also matter in the moment right now, um, not, you know, 40 years down the road. So I think in terms of lifestyle decisions and activities, um, you know, broader sorts of things like exercise and being mentally engaged, those absolutely matter at any point in time. But there are certainly plenty of things we can look at that absolutely have implications for today, tomorrow, um, and beyond. Um, one other thing just to add related to forming new habits, um, you were, you know, mentioning that as uh, you know a challenge, and for everybody, it's a challenge. When we look at the research, some of the studies have shown that it takes um, many weeks, maybe sixty plus days, to actually establish a new habit. So anyone who sort of says, "Well, you know, I've got a program where you're going to get all these things going in one week, and you're going to build a better brain in one week," you know, not really. It doesn't work that way. Um, it, it takes time to um, not only to build habits, but to unlearn bad habits that, you know, might be affecting us uh, with brain health. So um, taking things, you know, in a step-by-step -step way, monitoring our own behavior, anticipating some of the barriers and obstacles that are impeding our progress in, in regards to our habit. Um, you know, these are some of the things that, that really matter, um, but I think taking sort of steps in, in small doses, um, not really taking a big leap with a new habit, seems to be a pretty good way to go. Mm. Mm. In, in fact, this, um, uh, just going back to this uh, bike experiment, this is a second kind of major exercise session for me. I typically work out in the middle of the day. I'll take a couple of hours off in the middle of the day and do a um, a proper workout, but this thing, first thing in the morning, like I think this morning I was on the assault bike for 12 minutes. That's it. Doesn't take very long. And in fact, I think uh, a couple of days ago, the, the very first time I'd ever um, jumped on one of these assault bikes, uh, I think I did three minutes to start with. And that was it because you know, rather than jumping in and, and killing myself and trying to knock out 20 minutes or half an hour or going full on, it's like just little increments, one little thing at a time, establish the, the habit. If I go in and I do three, minute, three minutes and it's really easy, like particularly if we look at this from the, the valuation system in the brain, then I'm infinitely more likely to come back to it again the next time. If I've made it really complicated and difficult and challenging and there's 17 steps to do the thing and it takes an hour and a half out of my day, I'm much less likely to come back and do the thing, right? So, and, and it doesn't take much, a few minutes um, in terms of the exercise. Maybe we can talk about that. Like, wh like what, um, what does the evidence suggest as far as how often we should exercise? How much do we need to do to benefit um, types, uh, those sorts of things. Maybe we can um, discuss that a little. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so first off, just in, in terms of, you know, establishing an exercise habit, like you're saying, you know, taking those small steps is so important. Mm -hmm. If, um, you know, I'm working with someone and they, they feel like, geez, I'm just not exercising enough. I want to do more. I want to get to an hour a day. I, I don't encourage that. I say, all right, well, great. Well, that, that's a, an excellent goal. What if you started with a couple uh, five-minute walks tomorrow? Um, something that's, that's very achievable, gives us a sense of accomplishment that we can really do something at that level. And then, you know, build that in over the course of maybe a week and then ramp it up to a couple 10-minute walks or maybe a, a light jog. 
um, where it's really this step-by-step process where there's a lot of success throughout that process, and that you know increases the likelihood that there will actually be um, you know that that sort of again eventual goal to be met. Um, also think about tying uh, something to an event of some sort when we're trying to establish a habit, what we call an event-based cue. Mm. Um, so for example, um, some people like to exercise before a meal, maybe um, before lunch or maybe right after lunch if you haven't you know, eaten too much and you're able to kind of get out and do something. Um, but that way it's not necessarily uh, tied to time of day. Um, time is so lives that uh, if we say, all right, I'm going to start working out at, at five o'clock. Well, maybe you get a call at 4.55 that you have to take. And so suddenly things get shifted and, oh boy, dinner's coming up. I've got to cook tonight and everything kind of changes. Um, but if we're able to tie something to a specific event like lunch, for example, or, or another meal, um, all the better. Um, but, you know, getting back to the, the topic of exercise and uh, perhaps how intensely we need to exercise to help the brain or how much time we need to spend, it seems that moderate exercise is the best place to be. Um, and if we think about an exertion scale, a scale of zero to 10, zero being, you know, basically standing still, 10 being uh, running full speed ahead, somewhere around a five or a six on that scale seems to be um, where a lot of the research uh, has looked and you know where we see probably the most benefits for the brain as far as we know now. So this could be a, a brisk walk or a hike, um, you know, a moderately paced swim, dancing, something where your heart's beating a bit, but you're still able to maintain a conversation. Um, so that's a, you know, kind of a, a good place as far as how hard we're exercising. Now that doesn't mean that something like high intensity interval training, it isn't good for the brain. There's definitely some early evidence that it is. Um, but a lot of the work has, has looked at sort of that moderate exercise level. I would also say that any form of exercise is good for the brain. We look at even studies that look at people who are just walking at a leisurely pace, and that's good for the brain too. Um, I think one good way of thinking about it also is that exercise has this relationship with the brain that we call a dose-response relationship. So a dose of medication, we think of, you know, very easily as well. If a, a doctor gives you five milligrams of something for some condition and um, you then need a little bit more to 10 milligrams where that additional dose is maybe doing uh, twice as much, the same thing seems to apply for exercise, especially in terms of how, uh, how often we exercise. Um, but the intensity um, seems to fall in that pattern to some extent, too. Um, when we think about overall how much time we should be spending on exercise, there are a few ways to think about that too. So uh, in the States, we look at um, some of the standards that the um, CDC and the American Heart Association um, talk about. And for them, uh, they, they both say 30 minutes a day of some sort of moderate exercise, at least five days a week and then a couple days of some sort of strength training. And that doesn't have to be, you know, getting pumped up like the rock. Uh, it could be uh, push-ups, sit-ups, um, you know, just doing something where there's some muscle resistance. Um, so that's one standard. Um, if we look at the neuroscience literature, 
I would say that it's somewhat similar. Um, probably around 20 to 30 minutes a day or so seems to have an effect on the brain. And we can look at studies that have followed people for perhaps a six-month period. And when people are um, undergoing some sort of exercise training over the course of that period, um, from baseline to the end of the study, we see increased growth in uh, the hippocampus, some other brain regions as well at times. Um, and we also tend to see some cognitive improvement. Um, usually, we usually need somewhere between three to six months to start seeing those changes uh, more significantly. But again, after that period of time, um, we, we, we definitely see that the brain and our cognitive mm. skills have changed. Mm -hmm. let's, um, let's talk about your uh, CAPE model or framework. Um, so the first one was cognitive. Um, we can probably take a, a guess at what the other ones are, but uh, uh, why don't we unpack that a little bit and and, uh, and talk about some of the things that are in the book too. Sure, sure. So uh, first off, uh, yeah, the CAPE model is, is an idea that uh, came to me really in my clinical work that I sometimes struggle to find a, a concise way of describing some of the key factors related to brain health, especially as they're reflected in the science. So, um, so CAPE is this acronym. Um, C, as we talked about, stands for cognitive strategies that we can use in day-to-day -day life. A refers to activity engagement. So I like to think of three particular types of activity, uh, physical activity, which we've talked some about, um, social activity, social engagement, and mental activity. Um, all three of those, um, I like to call those the activity triad. And those three um, seem to have um, some sort of synergistic effects if we're doing a few of those at the same time. So, um, you know, taking a walk with a friend would hit on the social and uh, physical side. Um, if we're, um, you know, let's say going to a lecture with a friend, getting the social intellectual activity going. Um, but independently, they also have um, sort of unique effects on the brain. Um, so, so that's the A from the CAPE model. Um, the P refers to prevention of cognitive problems. And when I think about prevention, this, this falls into a number of different categories. This could relate to um, reducing cardiovascular risk factors, um, things that can set us up for hypertension, stroke, heart disease. So that could relate to, let's say, what we eat. Um, you know, a Mediterranean-style diet we know is not just a heart-healthy diet, but a brain-healthy diet. So that helps us uh, prevent cognitive problems there. And we can talk more about that um, later, perhaps. Um, stress management, great way to prevent cognitive problems. We know that stress um, has actually fairly profound effects on the brain. And um, the better we can regulate stress in our lives, um, the better our brains tend to work. Um, being able to maintain our sleep in uh, a way where we're sleeping in that kind of magical window of about seven to eight hours per night, that also tends to have strong effects on the brain if we're in that window versus if we're sleeping less or even if we're sleeping more. Um, either side of that window um, can actually be problematic. Um, not smoking. Smoking is really bad for the brain. So um, not smoking, we're actually preventing some potential care. Um, sports concussion management um, or you know, prevention. Um, these are, uh, again, other sorts of strategies we can think about in terms of preventing cognitive challenges. 
And then uh, the last part of the Kate model is E for education about the brain. Um, you know, doing this podcast, I'm delighted to, you know, uh, kind of ramble a bit on uh, some of these topics because this is a great chance to, to talk about these sorts of things. Hopefully your listeners uh, will, will learn a thing or two. And education comes in many forms. It could be listening to podcasts, um, going to community courses that help people learn about the brain. Sometimes there are good programs on TV. Um, streaming services might have programs there. Um, any way that you can um, not only learn about how the brain works, but also to try to kind of uh, disabuse oneself of the misconceptions about the brain, of which there are so many, um, you know, I think that's a, a very important aspect of, of brain health, too, is just kind of understanding how the brain works and also knowing that the brain isn't always perfect. We all have cognitive lapses from time to time. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so that's, you know, in a way, part of that, uh, that education piece, too. Is there, and maybe they're already doing it in schools, um, I wouldn't think so, at least not to uh, any extent that's going to be super helpful in terms of the brain health stuff, um, but is there a future in which we are teaching more of this stuff in schools, in, in, in primary school and, um, uh, and to young adults so that they kind of have a bit of a manual a bit of a, an idea of how to navigate the world based on what we know about the brain and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I certainly hope so. Um, I know that in, uh, let's say, uh, high school classes, sometimes um, in psychology courses, there's some, some education about the brain. One of the uh, U.S.-based neuropsych organizations, the National Academy of Neuropsychology, actually has an educational program that's designed for elementary and middle school students, uh, which is great. So uh, as professionals, as neuropsychologists, we do have some resources that we can use to yeah, help sort of some of the, um, the, the younger folks in our society learn about these topics uh, earlier on. And, you know, kids are smart. Kids, you know, don't need things watered down at, you know, sort of a, a way that things are so distilled that they're, they're not really helpful. Um, kids uh, often are, are fascinated by the brain. Neuroscience is a pretty hot topic um, in society. I think many people would say that. So it, uh, I think, helps excite, you know, the younger folks in our society about careers that they could potentially pursue. Um, just generally learning about science through learning about the brain uh, is, uh, you know, a, a nice sort of inroads in that regard. So I don't know how much, um, you know, broad progress there is in that regard, but there have been, you know, some ways that we, we have, you know, tried to get the information to folks that are uh, a bit younger. Mm. Which I think would make a, a, a significant difference when it came to uh, the practices that, uh, that adults adopt because they've already got that kind of base knowledge there from which they can draw on and maybe make better decisions at a younger age and then build those habits at a younger age, which means that we've got less to do uh, in terms of the education for adults. What are, what are some of your favourite strategies? You've listed a whole bunch of, of strategies here and, and approaches, physical, social, mental uh, the prevention, education, cognitive. What are, what are some of your favorites? What are some of your kind of go-to uh, for yourself uh, and for some of the people that you're speaking with and, and working with? 
Yeah, I, I like to, I guess, think about exercise as an initial thing that I, I really encourage people to do more of. I, I have to say that when I started learning about the exercise literature um, earlier on in, in my uh, sort of path in this regard, I was um, not exercising that much myself. And I started realizing, geez, you know, I'm talking about this with, uh, you know, folks that I see, but I'm, I'm not really, you know, walking the walk here. So I started to, uh, to exercise more and um, I, I absolutely feel uh, an impact on my own brain health um, the more that I stay physically fit. So I, I like to encourage uh, just even small steps in that direction, um, taking uh, walks. Um, you know, it could be uh, it, for, for five or ten minutes in the neighborhood, walking the dog, walking with the friend, walking with a partner. It doesn't have to be running marathons. And I really emphasize that piece in particular, that sometimes uh, there is this, uh, this sort of impression that we need to engage in a lot of vigorous activity in order to uh, experience any brain-related benefits. And that's simply not true. There really is this continuum and, and people can work out really hard and go for the Ironman triathlons and, you know, go for it at that level. But um, even, uh, you know, just, just walking on a regular basis can do really good things for the brain. And there's actually a fair amount of research supporting that, that um, just simply um, walking for, let's say, a mile a day um, ultimately has some very positive effects uh, on the brain and cognitive functioning. So that would be, you know, one of the, the first things I do like to mention to people that, you know, if there's one thing you remember from our conversation, um, think about trying to find ways to exercise more and taking small steps in that direction to, try, to not be overwhelmed by that idea. Make it easy for yourself. I also just like to think about uh, general cognitive strategies that people um, can use. It's uh, sometimes to me surprising that uh, many people don't um, write lists. Um, they don't use an appointment book or a calendar. And these are, you know, very straightforward um, kinds of ideas, of interventions, you, you could say, that help people remember information information better because they've now got it written down, help them organize their day more effectively. Um, so, you know, finding a way to just have a, a notepad that they carry with them or that's always by the phone or that's in some other consistent location. Um, I, I, you know, don't think that things need to be really high tech for people to benefit from a brain health standpoint. And so these, I guess, are a couple examples of that. Now, if you want to be more high tech, um, you know, I think a smartphone is a great way to, um, you know, sort of have a calendar um, because you've got a visual reminder, obviously the events that you're dialing into your phone, you've got an auditory reminder. If you, you know, turn on the auditory part, you some phones have a vibrate function. Um, so if that event's coming up in five minutes, oh, my phone's vibrating. Oh, that's right. I got to make that phone call or whatever. Um, so I, I think having a, a little technology, uh, you know, can be useful, but I, I think it's kind of those old school strategies um, that often make the most difference. And I, I really like to emphasize that with people I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> some, some, of, some of our listeners are thinking, uh, yeah. Ramon, you've said these sorts of things to us so many times before. Like, yeah, guys, you don't need to go out and buy a friggin' uh, assault bike like I did. I'm doing it for, for the experiment, but also because we're heading into winter. It's freezing cold in winter here. It'll be dark in the morning and there's a, um, a two-hour time difference, a two-hour greater time difference between here and 
uh, because all of our guests are in the US, which means that um, I've got to get up even earlier. I'd rather go out for a walk for 40, 40 or 50 minutes than jump on this machine of death <laughs> even for, t- for, for 10 minutes. Um, but for me, it's about the time and it's about the conditions and it's about um, needing to be able to um, you know, do these calls and podcasts at a time that's going to be convenient for people. Um, but just get out and go for a walk, guys. Like it's free. It's so easy to do. You feel so much better after after um, going out and going for a walk. Um, like uh, if you had to say, the you know, what's the number one thing that people can do that's going to give the biggest bang for the buck? Would you put your money on exercise? I would. Absolutely. That, that for me is, is at the top. Now I say that, but if let's say somebody is not sleeping real well, mm, that's a priority mm. to address. If somebody's under chronic stress, that's an issue to address. If somebody's very socially isolated or has some kind of toxic relationships, those things need to. But if all those issues are sort of dealt with and somebody's at a real good baseline and they're looking for just, you know, one thing to try, and there really should be one thing to try at the outset. There really shouldn't be, you know, five or six things that you're trying to build in. That, that's, you know, not, not a great uh, process as we can probably all relate. Um, but I, I would say exercise is that, that one thing. Um, exercise does, you know, seven, eight different things for the brain and cognitive functioning. And it's, um, it's so convincing. There's so much research on exercise. It's something that we know, you know, maybe our grandparents told us, you know, you, you need to exercise more. You need to do it every day. It's a great idea. It's one of those old adages, you know, uh, an apple a day takes the doctor, keeps the doctor away. Like those kinds of things that we, we've all heard, we've all known. But in a way, neuroscience has been a great way to clarify those things that our elders have been telling us for, for decades that um, this stuff really works and it's not a hyped thing at all. Any form of physical activity is just something that, that affects the brain pretty f- profoundly compared to, to many other sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And um, being mindful of the time here, I know we're sort of coming to the end of the show and I think um, we're definitely going to have to get you back on for at least another podcast episode. I'm also pretty pretty excited to talk to you about the positive neuroscience stuff as well because I um, I came across your book. I was looking at the positive neuroscience as an idea um, a few years ago, but there wasn't much out at the time, at least that I came across. So I'd love to talk to you about that as well at some point. Any any final thoughts for our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think in general, what I really like to emphasize is just the level of control that we have over our brain health. We don't have complete control. There are factors that come into play like genetics, um, maybe medical conditions in the background and so on. But there's a a fair amount of, um, you know, sort of a wiggle room in our brain health just at baseline and engaging in activities that are straightforward, that are free or inexpensive and available to all of us. Those are the things that really make the most difference. So for me, it's, it's very empowering as I reflect personally on that idea that it's not inevitable that we will, let's say, develop cognitive problems down the road, even something as severe as dementia. Um, sometimes people worry about that, that when, when we get older or, or even earlier in life, there will be these sorts of issues. It, 
for most of us is not inevitable. And there are plenty of things that we can do um, right now, day to day, today, tonight. I know our time difference is different here, uh, but uh, what, whatever you know, we want to define of it as a day, we can always do at least a little bit of something. Um, starting to exercise even a little bit more than before, um, engaging with people socially, calling a friend, going out to coffee, which we can't really do right now because of the pandemic, unfortunately, but making a phone call, emailing, having a video conference, a little Zoom, whatever form that might take, um, shifting one's diet, leaning a little more toward, um, for example, a Mediterranean-style diet, a very brain-healthy-style diet. Um, finding ways to, to reduce stress a bit more, coming up with even just one good strategy that when we're experiencing something stressful that we can go to as a, a technique. Um, these are small sorts of things that we can all do, but ultimately over time they can make quite a bit of difference. So I really like to just emphasize that, that we're all capable of basically making our brains work better. Mm. And guys, the Brain Health Book, I will put the link in the show notes uh, in the in the description so you can go and check it out. Uh, it's packed full of super useful stuff uh, and, of course, a lot of the science, which we love as well. And uh, so you guys need to check that out. John, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to have you on the show and to speak with you. Absolutely for having me. Really appreciate it. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Bye.